Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Bleeding Edge podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Benke, and today on the show, we have Dr. Alan Watkins. Uh, Alan, you are a, uh, a leadership development coach. You are probably one of the top 25 in the world. Uh, you are a neuro- neurologist. You're a trained medical doctor. Uh, and uh, you also majored, uh, I think, in uh, Virology, um, and so you know quite a lot about what is happening right now in, in the world. And one of the things I wanted to ask you today is what happens next? Because we've had a lot of people in containment for an awful lot of time. A lot of families have spent upwards of six weeks in quarantine now in Spain, for example, and they've not been allowed out. Um, and uh, the mood is distinctly turning. So especially amongst people with a lot of young children, the kids have not been outside of their apartments for six weeks. And this has been stringently enforced, and we're seeing a lot of civil, civil liberties being curbed in some of these places. Uh, Spain, certainly, and Italy, I think, very similarly. So my question really is, what happens next as this uh, now starts to extend, schools in Spain will not open until September. Enormous stress and change of a way of life for a tremendously uh, ex- you know, uh, sustained period of time. So what is this doing to people's mindsets? How do they come out of this? How do they cope with the next three months? Right. So you've asked me about 20 questions in one question there, Ralph. So thanks for that. <laughs> Um, you like a challenge. Yeah, no, exactly. So in answer to what happens next, the simple answer is everything. So let me, let me explain what I mean by that, right? Um, so before COVID happened, it was very clear that the world is accelerating. Uh, and uh, one of the consequences of that, it's getting more and more complicated. So it's getting faster and faster and more and more complex, So everything that could happen is starting to happen. That's even before we got into COVID-19, right? The world is accelerating, getting more and more complicated. Uh, And then what COVID has done is basically squashed 10 years into three months. So in my most recent book on the future of HR, we were talking about some of the HR practices that would be starting to emerge between 2020 and 2030. They're here already. Some of the things we thought, well, that probably won't happen for another five or 10 years, have already arrived. So we've got 10 years worth of change and transformation in three months. In fact, many people have said COVID has done more for digital transformation in three months than a thousand CEOs ever did. So we've got this time compression and a a, a sort of magnification of every single aspect of human experience. And in this magnification, those who came into COVID Uh, slightly fearful and anxious and on the verge of a regression will become more regressed. They'll get more fearful, more shut down, more belligerent, more aggressive, and we'll see that expand. Those people who were in sort of just stasis just survive. So don't get angry and frustrated and don't start lashing out. Just get through. We'll hunker down even more and go into stasis mode even more. Those parts of the population that were going, oh, I love change. You know, we needed to change. This is a good thing. There's opportunity in this change. will accelerate more into the change and become more disruptive. So anybody that was minded to take whatever course into the future will continue to take that course. So what will happen next 
the answer to that question is everything. We will see an explosion of all options, you know, the hunkering down, the stasis, the acceleration, all of it adding to that increased complexity. So it, it, all COVID has really done across the planet is really kind of put the Bunsen burner under any society uh, and heated everything up uh, and we'll get more elaboration, more chaos, more clarity, uh, more progress, more regression. All of that will happen. Now, when you think of purpose and uh, you think of sustainability and this almost great awakening that many people have experienced as a result of the reduction in pollution and uh, really just how nature has come back and a lot of people thinking about that there must be a new way. We've actually responded tremendously bravely to this process and we've achieved something quite incredible regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong uh, and a, uh, a, a, an excessive response. Um, it's obviously ruined the economy. But uh, a lot of people are looking at this as a moment of going, well, actually, we're capable, capable of something that can have a systemic level effect. Do you think we are somehow going to um, be braver about what we might achieve and that collectively that that really starts to pull humanity into a new normal? Because there is a new normal forming here, isn't there? Well, I think it's too early to say whether there is or there isn't. I mean, I think certainly a lot of people are, you know, waking up to the possibility that there could be a new normal. But whether we actually achieve that will depend on... Uh, enough people, and it's a volume game, you know, a, a, a big enough percentage of any society, any nation, uh, embracing the change and making a conscious choice to not go back to the way of the old, to embrace a new normal. And if a big enough percentage embrace a new normal, the new normal will become established. But I think the jury's out. It's a bit too early to to say. I mean, a lot of people talked about a new normal in the global financial crisis 2008. And largely, we didn't seize the opportunity. It's largely gone back to the way it was. Now, I think this is a bigger, more global uh, issue. Uh, and so one would hope that, you know, this really will wake humanity up as a species. But I think it's too early to say whether we're going to get enough people waking up enough people making the choice to sustain the new normal. So I think the jury is still out for me. It's too early to, too early to call. I mean, one would hope because clearly what this does show is many of the systems we rely on, healthcare systems, economic systems, political systems, uh, they're all past their sell-by date. They're all straining under the sort of creaking complexity of it all, struggling to cope with a world that's getting faster and more complicated. So it's revealed that, but whether we can really seize the opportunity of a new future, a new normal, and create something incredibly positive out of that remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, you and I will be working really hard to try and make that happen, but you know, it needs more than you and I. It needs more than a thousand you and I's. You know, it needs a big enough percentage of the population to go. Do you know what? I'm just not going back to the old way. And if enough of us do that then a new normal will become sustainable. Well, and obviously it takes a huge amount of effort to break the inertia of, of the current state. And I think there's so many vested interests. Um, I wonder if this kind of convergence of sustainability, 
purpose, capability is uh, almost creating you know, new conditions. This, uh, the drive of digital transformation is relentless, Alan. And, uh, mm-hmm. and what we see is that businesses almost paralyzed by, by options. So are we perhaps stumbling into a catalyst here that forces us to take all of that very seriously? We have to cut costs in our business. We're going to have to become more efficient because we've been deeply hurt by, uh, by this process economically. And of course, we have to find new ways of delivering our products and our services using digital technology. So actually, it's, it is a slightly different moment. Um, if there ever was a time that things could settle into a slightly different way, uh, it has to be now, certainly from what I remember in, in recent history. Well, we would hope. I mean, we would hope. Uh, and you and I are certainly fanning the flames and getting the bellows out to try and make that happen because we're big believers is that we, you have to embrace a different future because humanity's very survival uh, depends on that, right? We can't carry on as we have been going, you know, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, uh, you know, the global ethnocentric retreat in, in the political arena, um, the excessive consumption of resources, you know, um, the, the series of wicked... Pro- we can't carry on as we have been carrying on. And again, if enough people wake up to that, and not just wake up because you can theoretically understand the risks, but if you don't take action, what's the point of even understanding the risk? You've got to take action. And so what it will ultimately rely on is, will a large enough percentage of people take the action that is required? And, and some of that's being forced on companies in the way that you describe. Yes, they're going to cut their cost base. Yes, they're going to realize they need 50 offices, not 90 offices. Their footprint will shrink. Yes, they're going to realize that video conferencing is good enough for a lot of the meetings that they were flying around the world for. So a lot of that, you know, yes, they're going to have to use digital channels to get their products and services to market much more. So all of that will happen and is already happening. Um, Whether you, you know, in parallel with that sort of change in how we function in the world, there needs to be a change in who we are as human beings and how we relate to each other. So what you and I would know as the, the human being piece, the I, the relationship piece, the we, has to change. There has to be enough I change, enough we change to sustain the it change that is undoubtedly happening. And if we get enough I change and enough we change, then we've got a chance that some of those it changes, some of which are being forced on us and some of which we're embracing, the whole thing, the whole system, I, we, and it will transform and we will be in a brighter place, you know, 10 years from now. But as I say, it's finely balanced, Ralph. Uh, You know, the fat lady has yet to sing. The jury's still out. Well, the I, we, and the it really gives us an incredible framework. And I wonder what your thoughts are. When I look at LinkedIn and various other social media feeds, uh, I get hit by six things to do to build your C19 response. Uh, Five things that you must have in your strategy in response. Um, You know, this seems like a gross oversimplification of, of based on what you're describing is at another level, because I guess I understand that those six things that they're inevitably trying to sell you are very much in the it dimension. Oh, yeah. And that's the problem. That is the problem, right, is 
uh, when when human beings, and we say this a lot to our clients, is they're living in a one-dimensional world and the world's really three-dimensional. So they're it's addicted. They're addicted to task and target and metric and outcome in the it, the objective rational world of it. Um, and if you see the world in one dimension, your answers are only one dimensional. And what we're saying is, no, the world is three-dimensional. There is an I, a we, and an it. And the only way that change sustains is if it's accompanied by a change in human beings and it's accompanied by a change in culture and relationship. Now, if you get an I change, human beings mature, right? And a we change, we start to relate to each other differently. That will predict the sustainability of any it change. If I give you a very, very simple example, uh, uh, you know, it's often you'll see that nation states or companies will often pull together in a crisis, right? And that's because I let go of my ego. You know, it's not all about me. And I realize it's not all about me now in this crisis. So I let go of my ego. I become a bit more mature for a moment at least. And I start to look to others. And I realize I'm in this with you because I'm scared and I need you and you need me. So we relate to each other differently. We start to, uh, you know, get a sense of common purpose and we start to align faster. That's an I change, my maturity, and a we change, how we relate to each other and, you know, build common understanding. And if you get that I change, the maturity in the relationship change, then what we're doing, you know, the difference in, in how we're proceeding, how we're working, how we're driving our business will change because it's supported and it will be a sustainable change because it's supported by an I and a we change. The risk is once the crisis is over, if it all becomes about me and I become immature and egocentric again, if I start with that egocentricity and I stop relating to people, then uh, the problem will be that it change won't sustain. Now, what you're describing really requires an enormous amount of collaboration by the sounds of it across the organization. So not only are you dealing with an individual capability, but how the group is interacting with each other. How, how do you actually construct uh, the kind of intervention that enables this type of change in an organization. So as a leader, what should I be thinking about as I'm trying to understand how to build something like this where I have a functioning system? The answer is you can't construct it if you live one-dimensionally because it doesn't even occur to you that there's any I change or we change to be constructed. So if you only see the problem as it, your only answer is it. And you won't construct something that's sustainable. You'll just construct something that works for right now, which then breaks six months from now. So the first move is recognize the problem is three-dimensional and therefore the solution has to be three-dimensional. And therefore, um, we have to do something about people's fear and anxiety we have to do something about the disconnection and the social isolation. And we have to do something about the systems of healthcare and economics uh, in the world. So we need to, you know, actually just telling people to wash their hands and build more ventilators, you know, um, doesn't stop people being anxious. People are still anxious. So, you know, it doesn't matter how many thousands of ventilators you build, that doesn't eradicate anxiety. So you need a, a solution for the anxiety that is completely separate to ventilation and PPE. And also you need some way of addressing 
the social isolation and the relationship problems that are occurring, either because people are cooped up together or they can't you know, go and see each other. Either way, there's relationship issues. And that's not solved by PPE, hand washing and more ventilation. More ventilators doesn't solve relationship problems. How can it? That's an it answer. And the relationship problem is in the we dimension. So we, you know, leaders have to, first of all, wake up to the fact that this, the problem is always three-dimensional and the solution is always three-dimensional. And if you don't wake up to that, you'll never create a sustainable answer. And what comes first, Alan? Is it the fact that the leader wakes up or is it a, is it a group process? You know, is it possible for a leader to come to this realisation and start practising these models, onboarding this uh, type of development and then practicing on its on, on their people um, or is it something that they really need to develop uh, with the leadership team and uh, and a broader cohort within the organization well the simple answer to that is i we and then it so if the leader doesn't wake up themselves it won't occur to them to onboard the team right so the journey of leadership is inside out it starts with i always I have to realize that this isn't working. I have to realize that we're going to have to have a greater level of team cohesion. And that team cohesion is going to have to support the way that we transform our business. You know, we all have to be behind that transformation. So, you know, getting us as a collective, a leadership team to put our shoulders to the, to the wheel and get behind something Right? We have to do that. Whatever it is we're trying to get behind, shrinking the organization, accelerating the organization, going more digital, changing the product, pivoting, whatever it is, we as a leadership team have to get behind it. So if I as a leader don't realize there's an issue to do with alignment and team cohesion, I'll never create the space to where the team can start to figure out how to align more effectively. So the journey starts with I, goes to we, and then ultimately in it. The problem that most leaders have is they think that the, the answer starts with it. We've got to come up with some hand-washing PPE technical system change, whereas the real start point of the journey is I into we and we into it. If you step change the I and step change the we, quite frankly, the it becomes much faster and much easier. How long are we talking about to actually have an intervention like this or process like this start to have an impact. And I'll just qualify because the context that we find ourselves in right now is one where business is in emergency. Many are uh, applying for survival funding. And of course, they need a massive response Uh, in the consulting industry and in the training industry overnight. They have uh, moved everything to a virtual delivery uh, methodology, and you've seen this even in your own coaching business. Right. So, um, so if we think about how uh, how they move forward and actually integrate a model like this and go through the levels of development that you've described, how can they do that in a way that's actually giving them guidance and benefit today, Alan? Or is this something that is a process they have to do for six months to a year before they can fully achieve benefit from it? No, benefits can be achieved in five minutes, right? But it is a journey. So the answer to that question is both. Uh, you can start to wake up in immediately. I mean, just think about it. You know, I suddenly realize that the problem is three-dimensional. You're in a whole new world then, 
right? So instantly, one second after that aha moment, oh my God, the answer is I, we, it. We need an I solution, a we solution, an it solution. So five seconds after that third thought occurs, you start to wonder about what the I is, what the we is, what the it is. So you can make progress almost instantaneously, you know, with that I realization. Now, to get that progress to get faster and more effective, that requires work, you know, but you can, you know, every day of your life, you get the opportunity to mature as a human being in your eye. Every day of your life, you get to improve the quality of your relationships with your team, with your colleagues, with your peers, whoever, uh, and you get to move that on a bit every single day and you get to change what you're doing. Um, so it's both. You can make progress every day, particularly if you're paying attention and you're very thoughtful about the nature of that progress um, in the I, in the we, in the it. So you can make progress every day. The speed of that progress uh, can be helped by having a guide who understands these things about what does it really take to change any system, any organization, any team, or any human being. Now, there are many people out there claiming that they can guide that transformation, that change. Uh, but the truth is, very few can, because it's a lot more complicated than people realize. I mean, trying to get a human being to wake up and grow up is a lot more complicated. So, um, and a lot of people have spent years not changing. So if you really challenge, uh, you know, as we do sometimes, we'll say to leaders, well, how true is it? I mean, how different are you from how you were a year ago? I mean, are you any different at all? I mean, really? I mean, honestly, are you any different? Uh, and the truth of that is most leaders actually haven't changed that much in the last 12 months, or frankly, in the last 20 years, some of them. Um, and partly because they don't know how to, you know, and certainly if they were it addicted and they didn't realize that was even a thing, it didn't even occur to them that their change was important. They're just busy doing something. So when you pose that question, well, what have you, in what way have you changed? What you'll often get is a story about what they've done differently, not in what way are, are they different as a human being. You know, oh, well, I, well, yes. When you really kind of put them up against the ropes and say, no, no, I'm not talking about what you've done differently. I'm talking about how different are you? Who are you now compared to a year ago? Are you any different? Or are you the same person you were a year ago? So when you really sort of, you know, stop them claiming doing change as being change and say, like, in, in what way have you changed as a human being? then they really start to struggle. And one of the reasons they start to struggle is they didn't realize it was a thing and they've got no way of really quantifying their development as a human being. Well, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more self-aware. Well, you know, maybe you'd like to think that, but is it really true? Do you know how to measure that? Do you, would you know how to measure the change in you? And of course, most leaders don't. So you need a guide that knows how to measure and quantify the change in the I and the we. Uh, and also knows how to guide the evolution of I and we. And there aren't many people around currently on the planet that know how to do that. Well, Alan, we're coming to uh, the, uh, the end of our episode, but I think you've shared some really valuable insight there in terms of the I, the we, and the it, and the complexity of getting it right. But I think one takeaway was uh, certainly just listening to you articulated already 
uh, created some uh, very powerful models in my mind. And so I can truly see uh, just internalizing it and understanding it already has the power to, to move. So uh, some very powerful stuff. Some quick fire questions for you, Alan. You probably aren't mm -hmm. expecting these, but um, what's the secret to a success, uh, successful day look like for, for Dr. Alan Watkins? What's your morning routine? Uh, well, um, actually remembering to be appreciative uh, because me changing me uh, is, the, is the agenda. If I can become more mature, more sophisticated, then I can uh, achieve more with my day because I understand more, I can make more distinctions, I can have more influence and more impact, right? And that starts with, in order to change me, in order to develop me, I have to learn. Now, in order to learn, I have to appreciate you know, and one of the reasons human beings don't learn is they're not very good at appreciating. Um, I mean, period. So we have this little phrase, which I quite like, which is you first have to learn to appreciate in order to appreciate what you learn. So every day of my life starts with appreciation, appreciation that I've got another day on the planet, appreciation that I'm alive, appreciation that I can breathe in and out, appreciation that my fingers work or my eyeballs work or appreciation that my beautiful wife is with me, appreciation that I'm safe at home. I'm not stuck at home. I'm safe at home. So most of my days start with a degree of appreciation, a sort of practice of appreciation. And in that state of appreciation, when I start to encounter my digital world and, you know, go on the internet and start talking to people or seeing emails, I'm in a state of appreciation so I can extract some learning from whatever it is I'm encountering. And if I can extract that learning... Uh, I can then use that learning and deploy it to develop myself. So it goes appreciation, learning, learning becomes development, development becomes greater choice. And development and greater choice will ultimately drive the success. So that's the success of one of my days in essence. Well, I really like the distinction between development and learning. That's very powerful. I'm almost too scared to ask you the next question, Alan. If your friends and family had to be around and uh, suggest what your superpower might be, what would they say? <laughs> you better ask them, Ralph. I've, I've no idea. I mean, I, I think um, my observation would be something uh, uh, about, because I'm so passionate about reducing human suffering, um, I'm on, constantly on the, well, what does it really, really take? So I have this sort of metaphor in my head about what's the active ingredient? So going back to my days as a doctor, when you do drug discovery and you have a molecule, which bit of the molecule really achieves the effect? Which bit of this treatment program really moves the dial? So I like to strip out all the stuff that's not, you know, it's sort of peripheral and go right for the juggler, to use that rather florid metaphor, you know, right to the heart or sort of forensic precision on the thing that really, really makes the difference. So if I have a superpower, it might be being able to spot the thing that really turns the dial rather than a lot of what people claim turns the dial is that sort of forensic analysis to get to the active ingredient. And then what I like to do is to share that active ingredient as widely as possible because it's not mine, you know, Actually, all of our lives would be improved if we understood, you know, very simple truths about ourselves, about each other, about the planet, about the world we live in. There's some really simple things. If we could just understand that without all the noise and nonsense around and apply that simple thing, our lives would transform.
So that would be my superpower, getting right to the kernel, getting right to the precise thing that makes the biggest difference. Well, I think we've got uh, right to the precise thing that is on the bleeding edge of human development. And um, that brings us to the end of our show today. Uh, Dr. Alan Watkins, thank you very much. Thanks, Ralph. Have a great evening. This has been the Bleeding Edge podcast. We'll see you on the edge.